Welcome, beautiful world, to Barbarian Noetics, the podcast dedicated to the human spirit. I'm your host, Conan Tanner. What's going on, everybody? Thanks for joining, and I appreciate every one of you for tuning in to the BNP. Welcome. I'm coming at you from a hazy morning here in South Phoenix. It's Saturday morning, hoping to get this thing out this weekend. Um, and the sky is completely, the sun is completely obscured by the smoke emanating from the West Coast fires. And I know it's nothing like the literal orange skies in San Francisco and Portland but it's still very eerie. The sun obviously usually so bright and hot here in the desert. And um, it's so hazy that you can actually look directly at the sun, even though there's no clouds technically, it's just smoke in the atmosphere. And it is definitely kind of blunting the force of the sun's heat. Uh, This is the first time in a long time that I've been able to record the pod with both AC units off and feel comfortable It's a a little Christmas miracle here in September. But um, also just kind of heavy vibes. Um, You know, I don't really know what to say about it. I'm concerned about uh, quite a few things. And obviously the the fires up and down the West Coast is not easy to to bear witness to, even from a a relative distance. Although, as I say, the the smoke is really affecting the, the air quality in the sky here in Phoenix as well. Um, but anyways, so this episode is going to be a little bit of a hodgepodge. Um, I wanted to do an episode honoring David Graeber, the author and anarchist who recently passed away on September 2nd. So in honor of his passing, I wanted to do a brief episode on kind of tackling the concept of anarchism and breaking it down from a philosophical perspective instead of the kind of incendiary and punitive and carceral language that politicians like Joe Biden use about it, painting anarchists as equivocal with arsonists, which is absurd. That would be like saying platonic idealists are murderers or something. It's Anarchy is a philosophical concept. It's not, it's not something that can be you know, painted in broad brushes, much less something that can be condemned or arrested. So wanted to push back against that. And also I have my good friend Karma Chick calling in from Texas. And um, we had, uh, she had a wedding to go to this morning. So we only had the first part of our conversation. But I think what I'm going to do is tack on that first part of the conversation at the end of this pod. And then I'll start the next pod with the second part of our conversation. Um, So anyways, I hope you all enjoy the app. Again, I really appreciate every one of you so much. Um, Obviously could not do this without you. Thank you to each one of my patrons. If you want to become a patron, go to www.patreon.com slash noetics, and you can sponsor the show for as little as a dollar a month. And I couldn't do it without you guys, so thank you so much. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the BMP wherever you listen to podcasts. And without further ado, let's get into this pod. Thanks for joining. Peace. And I feel like sometimes I cry. Cause I feel so good to be alive. 
Emotions face twitching inside Try to make my way through pain and anger Then I look into my baby's eyes And I feel like sometimes I cry Cause I feel so Anarchists have been in the news a lot lately. The recent wave of demonstrations for black lives, the autonomous zone in Seattle, the street violence and governmental dystopian oppression in Portland. Through it all, the corporate news media, the spooks who work as columnists at the New York Times and Washington Post, and mainstream politicians from both sides of the aisle have been lambasting the so-called, quote, anarchists and outside agitators, unquote, and blaming them for everything from property damage to inciting violence against police and even organizing as Antifa cells to commit domestic terrorism. First, never mind that many of these agitators seen breaking windows have actually either been cops or governmental infiltrators seeking to delegitimize the protests. Also putting aside that Antifa is not an organization at all, has no leadership structure. Putting those things aside for a moment, one may ask herself, what are anarchists? What's an anarchy? And wearing all black in the summer looks hot. This episode is a defense and demystification of anarchism. Despite what Joe Biden believes, you can't arrest anarchy because anarchy is a philosophical approach to living in society. There is nothing chaotic, dangerous, or antisocial about it. In fact, anarchism is an antidote against the pervasive antisocial tendencies that plague our neoliberal, late-stage capitalist culture in the United States. As well, this episode is in honor of the late David Graeber, who passed away very recently on September 2nd in Venice, Italy, at the age of 59. Dennis Graeber was an American anthropologist, anarchist activist, and author known for his books Debt, The First 5,000 Years, The Utopia of Rules, and Bullshit Jobs. He was a professor of anthropology at the London School of Economics. As an assistant professor and associate professor of anthropology at Yale from 1998 to 2007, Graeber specialized in theories of value and social theory. Yale's decision not to retire him when he would otherwise have become eligible for tenure sparked an academic controversy. He went on to become, from 2007 to 2013, reader in social anthropology at Goldsmiths, University of London. His activism includes protests against the Third Summit of the Americas in Quebec City in 2001 and at the 2002 World Economic Forum in New York City. Graeber was a leading figure in the Occupy Wall Street movement and is sometimes credited with having coined the slogan, We Are the 99%. He accepted credit for the description, The 99%, but said that others had expanded it into the slogan. David Graeber, Rest in power. So broadly speaking, what is anarchism? 
According to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, anarchism is a political theory which is skeptical of the justification of authority and power, especially political power. Anarchism is usually grounded in moral claims about the importance of individual liberty. Anarchists also offer a positive theory of human flourishing based upon an ideal of non-coercive consensus, consensus building. Anarchism has inspired practical efforts at establishing utopian communities, radical and revolutionary political agendas, and various forms of direct action. While philosophical anarchism describes a skeptical theory of political legitimation, anarchism is also a concept that has been employed in philosophical and literary theory to describe a sort of anti-foundationalism. Philosophical anarchism can mean either a theory of political life that is skeptical of attempts to justify state authority, or a philosophical, a philosoph <laughs> tripping over my words, a philosophical theory that is skeptical of the attempt to assert firm foundations for knowledge. Joseph Proudhon, the man credited with the title of First Anarchist. Quote, to be ruled is to be kept an eye on, inspected, spied on, regulated, indoctrinated, sermonized, listed and checked off, estimated, appraised, censured, ordered about, by creatures without knowledge and without virtues. To be ruled is, at every operation, transaction. Movement to be noted, registered, counted, priced, admonished, prevented, reformed, redressed, corrected. It is, on the pretext of public utility and in the name of the common good, to be put under contribution, exercised, held to ransom, exploited, monopolized, concussed, pressured, mystified, robbed, then, at the least resistance and at the first hint of complaint, repressed, fined, vilified, vexed, hunted, exasperated, knocked down, disarmed, garroted, imprisoned, shot, grape-shot, judged, condemned, deported, sacrificed, sold, tricked, and, to finish off with, hoaxed, calumniated, dishonored. Such is government! and to think that there are Democrats among us who claim that there's some good in government. Unquote. Pierre-Joseph Proudhon. Tell me something, do I make you feel the 
Every night club lights touch your face Every night I try to find out what's on your brain Dear mama, help me know just what to say Cause I don't wanna be blind with temptation Tell me something, do I make you feel the way that I do? I've been uptight, you got me right, I'm back into my The following is an article by David Graeber called Are You an Anarchist? The answer may surprise you. This is from the Anarchist Library, all one word, dot org. Chances are you have already heard something about who anarchists are and what they are supposed to believe. Chances are almost everything you have heard is nonsense. Many people seem to think that anarchists are proponents of violence, chaos, and destruction, that they are against all forms of order and organization, or that they are crazed nihilists who just want to blow everything up. In reality, nothing could be further from the truth. Anarchists are simply people who believe human beings are capable of behaving in a reasonable fashion without having to be forced to. It is really a very simple notion but it's one that the rich and powerful have always found extremely dangerous. At their very simplest, anarchist beliefs turn on two elementary assumptions. The first is that human beings are, under ordinary circumstances, about as reasonable and decent as they are allowed to be, and can organize themselves and their communities without needing to be told how. The second is that power corrupts. Most of all, anarchism is just a matter of having the courage to take the simple principles of common decency that we all live by and to follow them through to their logical conclusions. Odd though this may seem, in most important ways you are probably already an anarchist, you just don't realize it. Let's start by taking a few examples from everyday life. If there's a line to get on a crowded bus, do you wait your turn and refrain from elbowing your way past others even in the absence of police? If you answered yes, then you are used to acting like an anarchist. The most basic anarchist principle is self-organization. The assumption that human beings do not need to be threatened with prosecution in order to be able to come to reasonable understandings with each other, or to treat each other with dignity and respect. Everyone believes they are capable of behaving reasonably themselves. If they think laws and police are necessary, it is only because they don't believe that other people are. But if you think about it, don't those people all feel exactly the same way about you? Anarchists argue that almost all the antisocial behavior which makes us think it's necessary to have armies, police, prisons, and governments to control our lives is actually caused by the systematic inequalities and injustice those armies, police, prisons, and governments make possible. It's all a vicious circle. Sorry y'all, I'm having to catch my breath. For some reason I'm like short of breath, maybe it's the smoke from the fires. It's all a vicious circle. If people are used to being treated like their opinions do not matter, they are likely to become angry and cynical, even violent, which of course makes it easy for those in power to say that their opinions do not matter. 
Once they understand that their opinions really do matter just as much as anyone else's, they tend to become remarkably understanding. To cut a long story short, anarchists believe that for the most part it is power itself and the effects of power that make people stupid and irresponsible. Are you a member of a club or sports team or any other voluntary organization where decisions are not imposed by one leader but made on the basis of general consent? If you answered yes, then you belong to an organization which works on anarchist principles. Another basic anarchist principle is voluntary association. This is simply a matter of applying democratic principles to ordinary life. The only difference is that anarchists believe it should be possible to have a society in which everything could be organized along these lines. All groups based on the free consent of their members, and therefore that all top-down military styles of organization, like armies or bureaucracies or large corporations, based on chains of command, would no longer be necessary. Perhaps you don't believe that would be possible. Perhaps you do. But every time you reach an agreement by consensus, rather than threats, every time you make a voluntary arrangement with another person, come to an understanding, or reach a compromise by taking due consideration of the other person's particular situation and needs, you are being an anarchist, even if you don't realize it. Anarchism is just the way people act when they are free to do as they choose, and when they deal with others who are equally free, and therefore aware of the responsibility to others that entails. This leads to another crucial point, that while people can be reasonable and considerate when they are dealing with equals, human nature is such that they cannot be trusted to do so when given power over others. Give someone such power, they will almost invariably abuse it in some way or another. Do you believe that most politicians are selfish, egotistical swine who don't really care about the public interest? Do you think we live in an economic system which is stupid and unfair? If you answered yes, then you subscribe to the anarchist critique of today's society, at least in its broadest outlines. Anarchists believe that power corrupts and those who spend their entire lives seeking power are the very last people who should have it. Anarchists believe that our present economic system is more likely to reward people for selfish and unscrupulous behavior than for being decent, caring human beings. Most people feel that way. The only difference is that most people don't think there's anything that can be done about it. Or anyway, and this is what the faithful servants of the powerful are always most likely to insist, anything that won't end up making things even worse. But what if that weren't true? And is there really any reason to believe this? When you can actually test them, most of the usual predictions about what would happen without states or capitalism turn out to be entirely untrue. For thousands of years, people lived without governments. In many part of the world, parts of the world, people live outside of the control of governments today. They do not all kill each other. Mostly, they just get on about their lives the same as anyone else would. Of course, in a complex, urban, technological society, all this would be more complicated. But technology can also make all these problems a lot easier to solve. In fact, we have not even begun to think about what our lives could be like if technology were really marshaled to fit human needs. How many hours would we really need to work in order to maintain a functional society? 
That is if we got rid of all the useless or destructive occupations like telemarketers, lawyers, prison guards, financial analysts, public relations experts, bureaucrats, and politicians, and turn our best scientific minds away from working on space weaponry or stock market systems to mechanizing away dangerous or annoying tasks like coal mining or cleaning the bathroom and distribute the remaining work among everyone equally. Five hours a day? Four? Three? Two? Nobody knows because no one is even asking this kind of question. Anarchists think that these are the very questions we should be asking. Do you really believe those things you tell your children or that your parents told you? It doesn't matter who started it, quote. Quote, two wrongs don't make a right, quote. Clean up your own mess, quote. Do unto others, quote. Don't be mean to people just because they're different. Perhaps we should decide whether we're lying to our children when we tell them about right and wrong, or whether we're, will we're willing to take our own injunctions seriously. Because if you take these moral principles to their logical conclusions, you arrive at anarchism. Take the principle that two wrongs don't make a right. If you really took it seriously, that alone would knock away almost the entire basis for war in the criminal justice system. The same goes for sharing. We're always telling children that they have to learn to share, to be considerate of each other's needs, to help each other. Then we go off into the real world, where we assume that everyone is naturally selfish and competitive. But an anarchist would point out, in fact, what we say to our children is right. Pretty much every great worthwhile achievement in human history, every discovery or accomplishment that's improved our lives, has been based on cooperation and mutual aid. Even now, most of us spend more of our money on our friends and families than on ourselves. While likely as not, there will always be competitive people in the world, there's no reason why society has to be based on encouraging such behavior, let alone making people compete over the basic necessities of life. That only serves the interests of people in power and who want us to live in fear of one another. That's why anarchists call for a society based not only on free association, but on mutual aid. The fact is that most children grow up believing in anarchist morality, and then gradually have to realize that the adult world doesn't really work that way. That's why so many become rebellious, or alienated, even suicidal as adolescents, and finally resigned and bitter as adults. Their only solace, often, being the ability to raise children of their own and pretend to them that the world is fair. But what if we really could start to build a world which really was at least founded on principles of justice? Wouldn't that be the greatest gift to one's children one could possibly give? Do you believe that human beings are fundamentally corrupt and evil, or that certain sorts of people, women, people of color, ordinary folk who are not rich or highly educated, are inferior specimens destined to be ruled by their betters? If you answered yes, then, well, it looks like you aren't an anarchist after all. But if you answered no, then chances are you already subscribe to 90% of anarchist principles and, likely as not, are living your life largely in accord with them. Every time you treat another human with consideration and respect, you are being an anarchist. Every time you work out your differences with others by coming to reasonable compromise, listening to what everyone has to say, rather than letting one person decide for everyone else, you are being an anarchist. 
Every time you have the opportunity to force someone to do something, but decide to appeal to their sense of reason or justice instead, you are being an anarchist. The same goes for every time you share something with a friend, or decide who is going to do the dishes, or do anything at all with an eye to fairness. Now, you might object that all this is well and good as a way for small groups of people to get on with each other, but managing a city or a country is an entirely different manner. And of course, there is something to this. Even if you decentralize society and put as much power as possible in the hands of small communities, there will still be plenty of things that need to be coordinated, from running railroads to deciding on directions for medical research. But just because something is complicated does not mean there is no way to do it democratically. It would just be complicated. In fact, anarchists have all sorts of different ideas and visions about how a complex society might manage itself. To explain them, though, would go far beyond the scope of a little introductory text like this. Suffice it to say, first of all, that a lot of people have spent a lot of time coming up with models for how a really democratic, healthy society might work. But second, and just as importantly, no anarchist claims to have a perfect blueprint. The last thing we want to impose, the last thing we want is to impose prefab models on society anyway. The truth is we probably can't even imagine half the problems that will come up when we try to create a democratic society. Still, we're confident that, human ingenuity being what it is, such problems can always be solved, so long as it is in the spirit of our basic principles, which are, in the final analysis, simply the principles of fundamental human decency. David Graeber, Are You an Anarchist? The answer may surprise you. Oh, 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 oh.
into this episode of the pod but first a quick word from our sponsor today's episode of the barbarian noetics podcast is brought to you by a psa sponsored by doors when you gotta walk from one room to another doors the boundary markers doors The following is a PSA for wage laborers. The BNP Guide to Deconstructing the Psyche of Your Immediate Supervisor in the Corporate Structure. Fucking up the middleman. One, make sure to leverage any situation in which you fucked up into a bigger fuck up on the part of your supervisor in order to maximize their own punishment by the higher ups who we all know are soulless blood-sucking bats hanging upside down in their HR cave offices, feasting on harvested mosquito kidneys. An example of this tactic would be, if your supervisor scolds you for not sending a memo, you then write an email to his boss, CC your soup, and scold in turn for never being made aware of the prerogative to send said memo. Always, always claim an error in training. Transfer the blame upwards. This will serve to discipline the middle manager against disciplining you for fear of greater discipline against himself. Two, always remember, the middle manager is essentially a cuck. They are resentful because they regret their own striving decision to apply for middle management, where they make barely enough money to live by spending the day bent over before their superiors, thanking them for the endless paddling in the form of memos, curt emails, and countless other microaggressions. You may make even less than the middle manager, indeed you likely do, but you also have less responsibility and thus more freedom. Remind your supervisor of this in subtle cutting ways, such as leaving small carvings around the office with notes that say, made this for you in my free time after my vanishingly small amount of menial work was done for the day. You must demoralize the middleman, make hopeless so that you may exert your will upon him. Three, drag your feet at every single opportunity, especially when given a directive by the middleman. The key to this strategy is to never drag your feet when executing a directive directly from the higher-ups. They must be very pleased with you whenever you come across their radar. Behave competently and confidently when interacting with higher-ups. This codifies their trust in you, so that when the middle manager inevitably sends a censure form to HR because you left him a carving of a small dick, the higher-ups will be less inclined to believe the charge, and the middleman will come across as the impotent, sniveling rabbit that he is. This has been a PSA from BNP headquarters in South Phoenix, reminding you, you don't get paid nearly enough to give more than zero fucks.
look down to the very beginning, I can go to where the world is born. Maria Sabina, when eating the sacred mushroom. With me, as with every other person of whom I have heard, the keynote of the experience is the tremendously exciting sense of an intense metaphysical illumination. Truth lies open to the view in depth, beneath depth, of almost blinding evidence. The mind sees all the logical relations of being with an apparent subtlety and instantaneity to which its normal consciousness offers no parallel. Only as sobriety returns, the feeling of insight fades, and one is left staring vacantly at a few disjointed words and phrases, as one stares at a cadaverous-looking snow peak from which the sunset glow has just fled, or at the black cinder left by an extinguished brand. In these unmistakable words, William James, the famous psychologist and researcher into consciousness, describes an experience he had when he took laughing gas nitrous oxide. This is the first chapter of a book, Dreamtime and Inner Space by Holger Kalwit. Chapter 13, Sacred Drugs, Where the World is Born. The normal waking consciousness James considers to be so sobering is described as false or a lie by the Latin American Givaro according to whom the birth of the real world can be experienced only during intoxication with psychedelic substances. For that reason, the Jivaro even gave a foretaste of this reality to their children a few days after their birth, but also when they have been disobedient. By this, they want to show them another world that is more embracing than the one on which they base their normal everyday behavior, and at the same time demonstrate to them that their knowledge is puny compared to that of the grown-ups. For the same reason they feed ayahuasca to their hunting dogs, because contact with the supernatural sharpens the hunting instinct. Mankind has made use of hallucinogenic plants from the earliest of times. The comprehensive herbal knowledge of many traditional peoples, as well as their knowledge concerning the correct application of herbs, has never ceased to astonish people living in a modern Western culture. How did these, quote, primitives acquire their knowledge? We hear that it was by accident, by trial and error. Traditional ethnology, as a matter of principle, rejects the possibility that a shaman, in a state of altered consciousness, can receive intuitive knowledge or have a vision concerning a plant with powerful healing properties and where to find it. But no matter how, healing plants were discovered. The shaman, during his initiation and rituals, frequently receives pointers to the appropriate herb root, or cactus. Just as physical and spiritual experiences, exercises are capable of breaking through the filter of normal consciousness, so psychoactive drugs bring about a lowering of our threshold for absorbing information so that properties of the environment, of which ordinarily we would remain unconscious, can be taken in, and a heightened, a heightened receptivity and vividness of feeling perception arises. The excitation slash inhibition mechanism of our perceptive capacity is altered. There is an explosive expansion of reality in the consciousness of the beholder. The curtain in front of a larger stage of life is drawn inside, drawn aside, and we experience a vision.
example of the principles of anarchy being applied in real-world situations to improve the human experience in real time. In this instance, we're referring to improving the experience and increasing the safety and efficiency of motor traffic in cities and towns. There have been many cases of townships who have decided to actually remove traffic lights as a means of improving traffic flow and increasing safety. Portishead, England outside London and Butte, Montana are two such towns. This is from an article called Naked Streets Without Traffic Lights Improve Flow and Safety. It can be found on thecityfix.com. In Portishead, England, self-organizing leads to less chaotic streets. Emphasis there on self-organizing. So this is all to say that humans are actually just ordinary people, you and me, the dude down the street, the lady selling flowers, ordinary folks are incredibly competent and capable and that our inherent desire to preserve ourselves 
includes to preserve the community. I think we have an inherent understanding of that as humans. We are social beings, we are communal beings. And we don't need to be bossed around or slapped around to be forced to take care of ourselves. In fact, that's a very dehumanizing outlook. Anyways, I digress. <clears throat> In Portishead, self-organizing leads to less chaotic streets. These lightless traffic junctures are known as naked streets. Trial projects that challenge the importance of traffic lights have occurred in other areas of England and Europe. Parenthetically, the first traffic signal was erected in London in 1868. Thanks, London, for traffic lights. The Portishead experiment is not alone in its redesign. Transport for London worked to remove lights in the central downtown with hopes of getting rid of as many as 20% of existing traffic lights. Recently, the city aimed to eliminate 145 lights it deemed useless. The original example is Drachten, a town in Holland of 50,000 people. It is home to exactly zero traffic lights. Even in areas of the town with a traffic volume of 22,000 cars per day, traffic lights have been replaced by roundabouts, extended cycle paths, and improved pedestrian areas. The town saw accidents at one intersection fall from 36 over a four-year period to just two in the last two years, since the lights were removed in 2006. The counterintuitive finding is that streets without traffic signals mean that cars drive more slowly and carefully because the rules of the road are ambiguous. There's no red, green, or yellow to tell drivers precisely what to do. When a driver doesn't know who exactly has right of way, he or she seeks eye contact and reduces speed. These naked streets without traffic lights, road signs, barriers, and other traffic controls forge shared streetscapes where cluttered space is replaced with common sense. These approaches are part of efforts to create walkable streets and design road conditions for multiple uses, not simply car driving. And another article, this one is entitled, Want Less Car Accidents? Remove Traffic Signals and Road Signs. And this can be found on BigThink.com. Hans Monderman believed that societies could make roads safer by making drivers more uncertain and therefore alert. When you treat people like idiots, they'll behave like idiots. Quote, that was the philosophy of Hans Monderman, the Dutch traffic engineer who became famous not for what he added to road design and urban planning, but for what he removed. Curbs, traffic signals, signs. He believed drivers become more alert and cautious when there's more uncertainty on the road. According to the anthropologist James C. Scott, Monderman began with the observation that, quote, when an electrical failure incapacitated traffic lights, the result was improved flow rather than congestion. As an experiment, he replaced the busiest traffic light intersection in Drachten, handling 22,000 cars a day, with a traffic circle, an extended cycle path, and a pedestrian area. In the two years following, the number of accidents plummeted to only two, compared with 36 crashes in the four years prior. I know that was referenced in the previous article. Sorry for repeating myself, I didn't realize. But I'm just really driving that point home. <laughs> totally intentional. 
Traffic moves more briskly through the intersection when all drivers know they must be alert and use their common sense, while backups and the road rage associated with them have virtually disappeared. Monderman likened it to skaters in a crowded ice rink who managed successfully to tailor their movements to those of the other skaters. He also believed that an excess of signage led drivers to take their eyes off the road and actually contributed to making junctions less safe. Monderman's philosophy, popularly called, quote, shared space, as coined by the English urban designer Ben Hamilton Bailey, has been implemented in cities around the world. It seems to be working. Instead of causing chaos and collisions, the, quote, red light removal schemes almost always result in improved sociability and traffic flow and fewer accidents in some cases. A study of centerline removal in Wiltshire, UK, for instance, found that people drove more safely without the markings, and the number of accidents decreased by 35%. The key to this philosophy is an understanding of the behaviors that result from the implied context of a road within its community. In the mid-1980s, Monderman, then a regional safety inspector, was sent to the small village of Udahask to see what could be done about vehicle speeds. Weeks earlier, a car had fatally struck two children. While conventional options at the time might have included speed bumps or more signage, both known in the industry as, quote, traffic calming, Monderman ultimately suggested making Udahask more, quote, village-like. It was an intervention based on aesthetics as Tom Vanderbilt writes. The interventions were subtle. Signs were removed, curbs torn out, and the asphalt replaced with red paving brick, with two gray gutters on either side that were slightly curved but usable by cars. As Monderman noted, the road looked only five meters wide, but had all the possibilities of six. The results were striking. Without bumps or flashing warning signs, drivers slowed, so much so that Monderman's radar gun couldn't even register their speeds. Rather than clarity and segregation, he had created confusion and ambiguity. Unsure of what space belonged to them, drivers became more accommodating. Rather than give drivers a simple behavioral mandate, say a speed limit or a speed bump, he had, through the new road design, subtly suggested the proper course of action. Shared space has been, in effect, the default traffic mode in parts of the world where standardized traffic systems were never implemented. An example is Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. Also in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and Delhi, India. And if you go to this actual article, they have videos of each, each of these cities showing this um, kind of philosophy in action. As Hamilton Bailey writes in an article for The Guardian, the thing about the signals being removed is that the driver is no longer being given a green light, literally. And what the green light does is to communicate to the driver that you've got priority here. You should be going ahead, and you should be angry if grandma is on the road in front of you. So the article goes on from there, but I think you guys get the point. And this is all to say that we humans, we ordinary people, not the elite, not the super rich, the 99.999% folks, people, folks on the street, just people going about their days, are way more competent and intelligent and capable than we're given credit for. And we can organize our societies well and efficiently and safely without being bossed around and ordered around to do it.
All right, y'all. The following is an audio clip of David Graeber himself speaking in his own words about the need for universal basic income. And I wanted to include it in this episode to really um, give y'all a sense of the kind of spirit and, and quality of thought that David Graeber brought to the world, and he's going to be missed immensely. Um, rest in peace. And then we're going to end the podcast on a more light, lighthearted note. Um, part one of a conversation I had with my good friend Karma Chick calling from Texas. And part two of that conversation is going to be coming soon. So thanks as always for listening, everyone. And I'll catch you on the flip side. Peace. It's really 
it, it marks a point where we really need to reevaluate what it is that is valuable and meaningful about the things that we do every day. I remember one time my father took me aside and he said, you know, everything you see around us, this house we have, everything you see in it, I earned that with my own two hands, working nine to five every day. You know, I would get up in the morning, I would go in and you know, it, was, it was my labor that brought you everything you see around you. He said, David, it was horrible. Don't do that. <laughs> Find some way you don't have to get a real job, you know. <laughs> so I, I, I took his, well, his words to heart, and you know, he said, becoming an academic or something. You know? <laughs> and I realized that there's, like, huge classes of people. It's true of a lot of people in government, more and more as time goes on. You know, their real job is, is to make you kind of feel like you're inadequate, that you don't, you're undeserving. And, and, and... I realize that, you know, that's what government does. All these neoliberal reforms which are supposed to, like, put conditionalities on welfare and, like, make things more efficient, they're, they're framed in this moralizing terms. But what they actually end up doing is, you know, creating these huge class of people to sort of monitor you and make you think you're just not doing a very good job in life. And these, these bureaucracies operate, you know, are creating all of these jobs where people are essentially, you know, telling you that value comes from paperwork rather than from anything anybody actually does. You know, it starts on the level where there's this guy sort of monitoring you to see if you're using all the rooms of your house correctly or taking care of your children correctly or, you know, all the sort of um, benefit like fraud conditionality, you know, people, people trying to decide whether you're actually married to someone or, um, you know, so, so poor people are just constantly monitored by huge classes of people who are there just to make you feel bad about yourself and tell you you're not doing a good enough job in life. And then the middle class, there's an audit culture, everything, you spend as much time, I mean, I know this from universities, you know, sort of assessing what it is you're doing than you spend actually doing it, like increasingly more time assessing it. Uh, and that's all with forms and paperwork. And, and value comes from paperwork um, more and more. And, and I think finance is just the peak of it. It's the idea that, like, you know, uh, a securitized derivative is just a really, really, really fancy form of paperwork, which is the ultimate source of value, right? <laughs> so the people who have the most elaborate paperwork are the, you know, create the most value and are the richest and are the top of the pyramid. So, so what would be a, you know, a left-wing position that would, like, be anti-bureaucratic? I mean, we need to grab this. Because, um, and, and I think it's pretty obvious. It's just, like, fire all those guys and, you know, um, and give everybody the same amount of money, that'll work. Um, and it'll, it'll reduce the size of government dramatically because all those annoying people do, like, you know, trying to make you feel bad about themselves, well, you know, they'll get basic income too so they can go off and become poets or musicians or, you know, do something useful with their lives. They'll be happier too. I don't really want to be doing that. Um, so that, that whole sort of mountain of paperwork will just kind of collapse. The thing that people in power fear the most is a population that, you know, has basic security and time. I mean, that started to happen in the late 60s. Yeah. And look what happened. <laughs> they freaked out. I mean, you can actually see this. Um, there was, a, I, actually, I've talked to people who were in different, like, sort of ruling class think tanks at the time, and they said there was a lot of discussion, like, what's going to happen when robots replace all the jobs? You know, we thought the hippies are bad. What happens when the entire proletariat turns into hippies? Oh, my God. <laughs> it's going to be a disaster. Um, you know, Marx has always attributed ideas of communism, labor theory of value, from each according to their abilities to each according their needs. It turns out he didn't make up any of those himself, really. They were just seemed to be the kind of things that were bouncing around in cafes at the time and sort of worker circles. And he kind of picked, picked up and, and certainly integrated it in a brilliant way. But um, the idea of the labor theory of value 
was just became common sense in the 19th century. I mean, if you look at even sort of mainstream politicians, I was looking at speeches by Abraham Lincoln, you know, any of these people, they, they sound like Marxists now. You know, everybody's talking about how, you know, all capital is derived from labor and labor must be given precedent, so forth and so on. And so, so they had this notion that that value comes from human labor. The problem is they had this, also had this focus on production, that, you know, the factory and factory labor was seen as the sort of paradigm for all labor. It was very macho, you know, males, like guys smithing things and banging things and make, casting iron and so forth was... A, production line, perhaps, um, was, was the basic image. Whereas, of course, most labor is not actually productive, if you think about it. Like, you make a glass once, right? But you, you wash it like a thousand times. Most labor isn't about making things. It's about keeping things the same, maintaining things, nurturing things, letting, giving them an environment in which they can grow, um, caregiving, caretaking. Um, but, but then the question is, how do you validate work? Um, well, you just say it's, you go back to the Puritan idea. Work is valuable in itself. If you're not, like, working really hard at something you don't like, well, you're not a very good person. You know, you sh uh, you're, you're a parasite. Um, so all of a so that's how you can have the situation now where people actually think their work is more valuable if they don't get anything out of it. So even if you, like, know that you're doing something good for the world, you know, in a way you should be paid less. People think it's okay, you know, like nurses should be paid less or, you know, because they're actually contributing, or teachers, because they're contributing to the world. Um, so I think that we need to massively reevaluate re this. If, if, if we're going to take off again, uh, we need to start thinking about what makes work actually valuable, which is that it actually it's a form of care for other people. You know, it, it, it benefits people in a concrete way. And nobody can really decide how that happens other than the people doing it. So I think if we're going to try to have that conceptual revolution, which um, you know, can overcome this notion of job creators and that you know, all, everybody, left and right, you know, when they have, uh, they're always calling for more jobs and more work. I think, you know, um, because the only way they can see people as valuable is that they're like doing something they don't like very much, whether or not there's any need for it. Um, we've caught ourselves in a conceptual trap, and I think only notions of basic income can like start us reevaluating what it is we actually value about what we do. Gonna break
lovely karma chick calling from an undisclosed location in texas what's up karma what's up brother how are you <laughs> good so we were just talking off mic and um the the topic of spells came up and specifically uh love spells so i turned to a random page in my book and it's the exact chapter that was pertinent to what we were talking about the negative love magic um section wow. <laughs> unbelievable and so yeah, it it is. I mean, it's like, what, this is a 400-page book? And I wasn't even... And it's interesting because that... It, it's an example of how when you try to force something like that, it doesn't happen. But when you do it just yeah. purely... Because I wasn't trying to do... I, I literally just unconsciously picked up the book and unconsciously, <laughs> <laughs> like, opened it. To the it's exact so rate. amazing. It's so applicable in so many ways. Yeah. So there's this and not one just that between people like lover to lover, but kind of what we're seeing. I mean, I think of it in Oregon, like my love affair with the Pacific Northwest and all the yeah. juicy feminine yin there. And yet, you know, right now we're in this really terrifying, sad time of fires and smoke. And so, yeah, I'm watching the sunrise here in Texas and it just rains a big thunderstorm you know oh that's nice yeah you can send some of that energy to the northwest yeah it, it's very sorrowful um i think a lot of i think everyone feels that sense of sadness and especially those of us that have lived there and kind of know mm -hmm. the energy intimately of the place it is it's heartbreaking um but it's also like a rite of passage that has it's like it's it it's this is such a cliche, but it, it is what it is, kind of. Like, these things right. are happening, and the earth is changing, and it's it very, very difficult. Like, but mm -hmm. It has a yeah. very Pele, like, lava energy to it. Like, things are burning now, but then the seasons will shift. You know, we are going into the fall and the winter, and, like, the snow will fall, and the rivers will rise, and we, you know, will have that peace again and that clearing. But it is right now, it's like... Pele, probably what you experienced on the big island yeah yeah it's like the the wiping the slate clean and uh they're kind of resetting hitting the reset too i mean the the forests will grow back but it'll take a while but they're going to be extremely well nourished you know by the fire and but yeah on that note <laughs> oh yeah, so there's this one um there's this one spell that I feel like I'm resonating with with telling you. So um and by the way everyone, this is my favorite book of spells. It's called The Little Big Book of White Spells by Ileana Abrev, who is um she's a Cuban woman who was taught by her father who was a Santeria. So or a Santero, I think is the term. Alright, so this one is Take Your Eyes Away from My Lover. 
Someone, sometimes one particular person wants what is yours and will go to any lengths to get it. Don't just stand there and watch the sham take away what you have built and know to be honest and true. Before you do anything, trust your partner. But if you find that the other person is still trying to take away what is yours, you have every right to protect your relationship. You will need one black candle, 10 peppercorns, and one small blue cloth. My favorite spells are the ones with like really simple, like just like when I'm cooking, I always look for like yeah. the basic recipe because I don't have like anything. You're like, <laughs> you're like making an omelet. Exactly. <laughs> I'll get some pepper on my eggs and also a little bit over here on this spell that I'm making. Yeah, and a little small blue cloth on the on the omelet. Why not? <laughs> um, I still have your Nordic spell on my door frame. Good. That's a powerful one. But you should retrace it. Like every couple months. Oh, good to know. Yeah, yeah, because that kind of recharges it. Mm. And um, to give it extra potency, uh, <laughs> I know you only have a little bit of time, but to give it extra potency, what you should do is take get a piece of cardboard and cut the cardboard into an arrow shape oh. and then get a bowl. And if you have any old keys or keys that you no longer use, place the keys in a bowl. Oh, and then yeah. place, yeah, and then place the arrow, the cardboard arrow over the bowl in the direction of out. So, like, pointing out, out of the house. Okay, and so it's almost like a magnet to draw that negative energy outward? It just protect. what it does is it dispels any negativity from entering your space. Mm. So, like, even if, and I've had this, I've had some really gnarly experiences in my, my hovel in South Phoenix with, like, you know, I've had, like, people trying to physically attack me and stuff, and it's remarkable how well the spells work. Like, I've, I've, I've had someone be, like, come to my door in complete anger and then just kind of freeze and then walk away. And I know mm-hmm. that that's, I know that that's the spell. So, well, yeah. The just, spell has worked because it was put, it was placed there for COVID. And, I mean, I'm, I'm a healthcare provider working in a healthcare setting in downtown Dallas. And I yeah. have been COVID-free. We get tested every month, so thank you. Of course, yeah. I mean, thank thank old Greybeard. Mm. <laughs> I'm, I'm, and my I'm immune sure. system and all the herbs and all the plants. Absolutely. Your entire lifetime of health and taking care of yourself, yeah. And my grandmothers, <laughs> all of them took care of themselves. Thank you so much, great-grandmother. Aw, that's so beautiful. Mm. Yeah. Um, so then I also like to put... Uh, a couple gems or stones on each side of the arrow to kind of like balance it. So like one on the the the, the forward pointing side and then one on like the back side. And then um, then to like super supercharge it, I place a white candle like a tea light on top of the arrow and let it burn all the way down. So you light the candle. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank and you. I kind of, yeah, I kind of, I sort of envision these things as like activating it. So when I, when I set up the spell, then I light the candle that activates the spell. And then when you always want to let the candle burn all the way down. So that's why tea lights are perfect because, you know, if you light like a big old beeswax candle, you're in for like an eight hour journey <laughs> until the candle burns down. <laughs> but the tea light's pretty self-contained. I mean, you can, you know, you can probably walk away from it for a bit and it'll be fine. And then another thing people don't know is when you when you use a candle for a spell, you never want to blow the candle out. If you do want to put the candle out, you have to snuff it out. Because if you blow it out, it disperses the energy. 
Right. I was going to ask also, what are there any recommendations for closure for for completing the ceremony, wrapping the bundle? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's one of those things that, like what you just said, wrapping the bundle. I think whatever comes sort of intuitively to you to close is good. Um, I the way I like to do it is I start east and end east. So I always orient pretty much anything I'm doing, any ceremony or spell, to the four directions. So I start east. And then I move in a circumambulatory or revolutionary motion, and then I end it facing east. And then another way to end a ceremony is you you use the star. So when you, you know, like the five-pointed star, Mm -hmm. if you're closing something out or kind of like sealing something, you do the star and you end on a downward motion. So like you end on one of the lower points of the stars. Okay, if you're, to ground it, just to ground mm-hmm. it into you. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. And then um, if you're opening up or you're wanting to attract something, then you end on the upper point of the star. <clears throat> That's good to know. Can you, you can, if you need grounding, like having an earth tree absolutely. and root, like branches and roots? A hundred percent. I always do both. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you can do it just in the air, like with your hand, or you can do it with like, uh, you know, anything. You can, you can actually paint it. You can draw it. You can do it with the crayon. You can, what I do is I do it when I burn sage. I, when I put the sage out, I put it out like in a star shape. Like I run it across the ground in a shot in a star. So it, at night it creates like this little spark star. It looks really cool. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Um, okay. So. And then I have one more spell for you too after this one. But so the the black candle, the ten peppercorns, and the one small blue cloth. Light the black candle while you visualize the one who has intentions towards your partner. Embed every one of the ten peppercorns deep within the candle's wax. With each peppercorn you embed, say in a loud voice with strength and courage, keep away from my love. And then you say the name of your partner. You can't have him, and you never will. So I'll, I'll text those words to you, too, or you can write them down. Okay. <clears throat> My phone was on mute, and I definitely said them out loud, and I meant them. Okay, cool. <laughs> you're so you're so industrious. You're, like, putting <laughs> stuff on mute and doing stuff in real time. <laughs> oh, and then, um, I feel like a tree theory, but I do feel like I have grounding in this three-dimensional world as well. You are a tree fairy. No, thank you. If everybody knows me and that aspect of me, it's you. Yeah. <laughs> so then <laughs> once uh, once you've finished, snuff out the candle and wrap it up in the blue cloth. Doing so will cool the other's passion for the one you love. Place the cloth and candle inside your freezer and keep them there until the issue is resolved in your favor. Wow. In the freezer. And Yes, because that works okay, so, so cool. That it, shit down. It freezes it, it, it when it works so well, Karma. Because I've used it not this exact spell, but I've used it to dispel anger. Like again, when I've had people trying to attack me and stuff, you write mm-hmm. down the you write down the person who is showing you the anger, and then the reason why they're showing the anger. You write it on paper, and you put it in a, like a mug of water, and then you freeze the mug. And it, what if it, you don't know the reason? Then you can, can you just, just say, say whatever the reason is. Yeah, if you mean if you don't, if you know the person but you don't know the reason. Right. If you know that they're angry but you don't know why. You can just say that. 
you can just say like whatever the reason be exactly yeah but yeah so um so yeah so do you want me do you i guess i can answer questions for you when we when we hang up with you but that's definitely a really good spell to do and it's pretty straightforward you just have you just need a candle 10 peppercorns and one small blue cloth and then do you have time for the next one yeah for sure okay So this one, the name of this one is Peace. Negative energies need discord and arguments in order to feed, and they will never be able to penetrate your home as long as there is peace within it. You will need one white candle, five cooking cloves, one teaspoon of rosemary leaves, one charcoal tablet, and one bowl filled with sand. Wow. That is amazing. I took a charcoal <laughs> tablet this morning and I literally chewed on, I, I literally reached down with my mouth and chewed on my rosemary plant. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. That, that's <laughs> like the second just ridiculous synchronicity so far in this like 20 minute call. <laughs> um, okay, so on a moonless Saturday night, of course with, with this stuff is, that's like the ideal time, but you don't necessarily have to do it at that time. But she always just lets you know like what, what the ideal is. On a moonless Saturday night, light the white candle while thinking only about the peace and protection you want in your home. Then go outside and light the charcoal tablet on top of the sand in the bowl. Bring the bowl back inside when the initial smoke has dispersed and a red charcoal tablet has been left on top of the sand. Now add three of the cloves and sprinkle half of the rosemary on top of the charcoal tablet. By now, you'll be able to see and smell the aromatic smoke and sense the protection it provides. Carry this bowl around your residence in a clockwise direction. You are spreading protective and peaceful energies all around your home. When the smoke begins to die down, put the remaining cloves and the leftover rosemary on top of the charcoal tablet. Repeat this spell every Saturday and Tuesday for as long as you need to protect the peace in your home from those who would take it away. Dun, dun, dun. What is the significance of Saturday and Tuesday? So Saturday is, I should know this off, off the top of my head, but I'm going to look it up real quick. It has to do with the, the, um, like the deities that the days are associated with. I see. Okay. So wait, that makes sense. yeah, here, I'm just going to look up and see what, who Saturday is and what, um, I've been listening to across the universe. So Ooh, nice. Crazy. I just learned it on, on the piano. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's really awesome. the first song that I've learned in my adult life on piano. <laughs> That's perfect. That's like the best. That's the best. Maybe first. later I could play it for you. And we. I would love that. Yeah, we should. We should have it on the pod. Yes. Yes. We should. <laughs> okay. So Saturday is named after the Roman god Saturn, who's associated with the Titan Cronus, father of Zeus and many Olympians. Isn't Cronus is the the god of time? Yes. So. Time so heals all wounds. Exactly. Yeah. And then Tuesday is really cool. It's named gets its name from the Anglo-Saxon god of war, Tu, also known as Tyr to the Vikings. The Romans named their third day of the week after their god of war, Mars. 
That is why romantic languages like Spanish, French, and Italian all have similar names for Tuesday. Martes, Mardi, and Martedi. And so she probably... Isn't that cool? And if you want to... Because Mars is is my ruling planet. And also, it's, you know, it's fire. And it's... Yeah. And it's war. And it's conflict, you know? Mm-hmm. And hopefully resolution. Isn't it a pretty well, compact planet too? Like dense? I think, I think that it is. I think it's smaller and denser than Earth. Mm. Yeah. Like if we were on it, we'd be instantly flattened into like pancakes? Uh, I mean, probably you would be like on the ground, but I don't know if you would be flattened. Let's see. Because Mars. of the grass? I don't know. <laughs> okay, Mars has three point seven times the gravity of Earth. Holy shit. Yeah. So basically we would shrink instantly and be compressed into like a third <laughs> of our body's height because our the gravitational pull is so strong that we couldn't hold ourselves up. Yeah. Yeah. You I mean I don't, I don't think it... remember those little dolls that you squish the bottom like their feet and then they collapse? Yeah. <laughs> and then you let go and they <laughs> You want to wreck again? Yeah. That's what really happened to us if we stepped on Mars. You can't let go until you, like, terraform the planet. So you have to <laughs> you have to do the entire terraforming project, like, in a crab walk. <laughs> but um, I feel like the reason why she chose Saturday and Tuesday is because Saturday is, like, the day of time, and then Tuesday is, like, the day of strength and the day of warriorship. And it's kind of like you are you are imposing your will to protect your own home, you know? That's a really good point. It's not imposing your will on anybody else. No, it's no. It's gathering your own strength and creating your own safe space. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really believe in dark magic at all. But I don't judge people who participate in it. I just don't. It doesn't resonate with me personally. Well, I've had some dark shit thrown my way recently, and I'm not okay with it and I'm ready to truly have have peace and clarity and protection yes and the nice thing is that when someone is sending dark magic towards you you actually have the power in that situation because they're giving you all this energy they're just Mm. like giving you this gift of energy it's like I'll I'll just stoke that into my fire and I'll cook my marshmallows on it exactly yeah and then you can you can charge when you do the door spell with the keys and the candles. You can definitely charge it with the energy and then just send it back out. And um, do you have a do you have a rubber ball? <laughs> I know it's a random question. <laughs> um, I have a massage ball, like a little yeah, I think, or like a, a tennis ball or like a racket ball. I think racket balls are made out of rubber, right? Yeah. So place the racquetball out, like, at the edge of your property, facing whatever direction the energy is coming from. Put it at the edge of your property in that direction, and then as the energy comes at you, it will bounce back towards the person. Cool. Wait, um, okay, interesting. So physically, if this person is in a specific location, like, where that direction is? I mean, like yeah, or, like, the general direction, you know. Okay. The, the yeah. best thing to do is really to put it in their yard, but I don't really want – I don't think you should go to their yard. No, of course I think it'd be not, better and I can't to, physically right now. But yeah. what about somebody who no longer is alive or somebody who – or with, what if it's not a 
is this only for like a human, another human being? Or no, just not dark just, energies in general? It's just for dark energies in general. But okay. if, if you're getting dark energies from a spirit, you probably want to do a different spell. You, you could right. do the rubber ball spell, but you'd want to do other spells too. Well, this is, yeah, this one's in a more like this realm real living entity but um yeah it's good to know for future reference i think purple is a really good color to work with when you're dispelling spirits mm-hmm. and then obviously sage is incredibly powerful yes i love my sage garden i have so many yeah. different sage plants all of different varieties and they smell heavenly i have some in my tea right now that's beautiful i'm drinking saffron green green tea so God. Yeah, you, Karma Chick sent me a uh, picture of like her morning little little vibe with like this beautiful like woven rug, and then there was that nice like saffron tea, and a picture of the Dalai Lama, and there was like a little bowl with like sprigs of herbs. <laughs> like that is the most tree fairy shit I've ever seen. Oh, <laughs> I feel like when I am more mindful in the morning, it really sets the tone for the rest of the day. And I feel like that's the best time to create intention for the world because the world is more at peace, you know, before we really shift gears and the day gains momentum. That's such a good habit to get into, and it's something that I really need to get better at. For some reason, when I wake up, I'm, like, ravenously hungry, so I just immediately start <laughs> eating. <laughs> you actually have, like, like it's like Trudy Herman. Yeah. Remember how he had like eggs that were made by his toaster in every morning or something. Like one thing would yeah. roll down and like set the timer. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, like a like a hot air balloon would like wake up in the egg and it would like start frying. I do remember that. And do you remember in Back to the Future with Michael J. Fox how uh, Steve Christopher Lloyd's character built like a Rube Goldberg machine to put the toast on and crack the egg. <laughs> Um, there's gonna be so much radiation on this planet. All we're gonna have to do is just put our toast like outside. <laughs> That's so funny. Like, like new cell phone tower. Yeah, the five G will just like, like, yeah. That's gonna be the new thing. It's like the five G is so thick today you could cook an egg. <laughs> People are like, we don't even have to bother with toasters anymore. <laughs> Except everyone is an Android, so it's like we don't even have to bother with toasters anymore. <laughs> the toaster is my great uncle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dealing with negative energy from my toaster. It is my great uncle. We had beef. <laughs> we had <Quickly>. robot beef. <laughs> Place a spell as quickly as possible. <laughs> Find a like purple battery. Name. <laughs> Light your robo sage. <laughs> oh my gosh, can that be our band name? Robo yeah. sage. That's yeah, cool. It, it, it already yeah. is. It already okay. is. Yeah. <laughs> On that note, um, I am going to get ready for a wedding that I was supposed to be attending in London, but oh, I'm going to be on Zoom instead. But I'm still getting dressed up, and I'm I'm excited. It's my cousin, and she's married. Yeah. Gentlemen in London. Uh, yeah, that's, and I, I like the ritual of that, like everyone getting all, all dressed up, you know, and then going to the meeting at the virtual right. wedding. I think there's a lot of power in that, actually. Like, 
it was during the quarantine. I, I heard from so many people that like they had to go through the motion of getting getting ready for work, like even if they weren't leaving the house, just because oh, it's like psychologically it's important. It prepares you absolutely, and I it's yeah it's interesting because there it's gonna be, it's a six p.m. evening wedding, but here you know it's first thing in the morning and I'm gonna be I'm getting I'm gonna get all dolled up and <laughs> right it's but yet on different sides of the planet different times I'm still able to celebrate with her and honor that almost in like a cool way that it is either later in the day or earlier whichever way you look at it. Yeah, and, like, there's nothing wrong with not having to, like, get on a plane and travel all the hours and get all the jet lag and stuff. I mean, there's, there's some advantages to it. Right? I mean, 10 years ago, it would have been like, okay, well, I guess I'm not going to go to her wedding. But right. now I can be like, cool, I'll be there. I love you. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, and so much of it is, like, really the thought and the intention behind it anyways. So it's like, you know, we all showed up for you because we love you. I think that's really sweet. <clears throat> mm. But um, I will let you go get ready for it. And okay, cool. this was only part one of the Karma Chick conversation, and we're going to have a part two soon. Well, I look forward to it, and I can't wait. And thank yeah. you so much for this time together. For sure. And um, if you have any questions about the spells, just text me, and I'll, I'll fill you in. Okay. Have fun at the wedding. Okay, bye. <laughs> All right, bye. Like, I wasted my good experience with these people like 
guess it was meant to be, you was teaching me life So only half that memory's worthwhile We had beef, but at least there's a birth of a child Cool and flippant, reminiscing bad times When good people's terrific, beautifully different Cause we still kick it You said we can't be intimate, you said we can't go there If this thing is going nowhere, it's so weird Now it's cold, thought I had control Thought I took your soul, now nah, I took your mind and grave my name You told me that my mind is your favorite place to hang 10,000 hours turned to 10,000 bridal flowers What was mine is ours How many soulmates we get in this lifetime Right now's the right time You the wife kind I said your whole life trying to find All of as good as the time we had We had Every person that comes in your life Here for unlimited time So be fair Be fair Always planning, never manifesting 